the revival pastor. This subject this afternoon is important inasmuch as um, we will be talking about a church personality. Every church has its own different, diverse personality. Some of those personalities are growth-oriented, and some are not. Some are negative, non-growth. Some church personalities are vibrant, filled with life, definitely on the growth side. I suppose it takes from five to six years a man in one place pastoring a particular assembly before he gets in a position where he actually begins to communicate to that assembly. Communication is very difficult, and it takes a while before people understand what the pastor is saying, what he means. Then, of course, words are the cheapest and the most faulty way of communication. Six years in a place, a man begins to get some things across to the people that he is attempting to pastor. Out of that particular association, beginning with a six-year duration, it is possible for a climate to be created, a, an evangelistic climate and a growth climate. The beginning of the world's greatest revival we'd like to pay a special attention to tonight that some of it is recorded in the 19th chapter of Acts of the Apostles. And, of course, this uh, church, the world's greatest church, was pastored by a revival pastor. When we make reference tonight to a revival pastor, we are talking about uh, a minister who definitely believes in the premise of revival. And uh, not just a local meeting, but uh, that God does save souls, that miracles are possible today, and that God is willing to save many people today, and that He will save many people, that perhaps that we have not hardly seen the beginning of an outpouring which will be visited upon this earth before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This kind of attitude and concept sparks faith which goes out into the congregation and emboldens people to believe God for souls and to win souls for the Lord. There is a little history of the world's greatest church that uh, is found in Acts 19, 8 through 20. And he went into the synagogues and spake boldly for the space of three months disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way, the mul- uh, before the multitude he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannius. And this continued for the space of two years, so that all they that dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. What a revival. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs our aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and evil spirits went out of them. And it was known through all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on all them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, And many that dwell believed, came and confessed, and showed their deeds. 
Men of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. <clears throat> this was uh, the beginning of perhaps the world's greatest church. A church that grew as far as I am able to determine in a secular way to uh, 40,000 membership in Ephesus. Out of this church there came indirectly uh, the great epistle of the Ephesians, which has more in it relative to the purpose that God has for the church than any other epistle found in the New Testament. Also, out of this Ephesian church came six other churches in the Phrygian Valley. These seven churches are the ones that are referred to in the forepart of Revelation, which we know as the seven churches of Asia. These churches were born out of a tremendous revival. They were sired and established by a revival church. The man who gave birth to all of this was a revival pastor who believed that God could save even unto the uttermost, as many as believe upon the Lord. Now, of course, time would not permit us to cover all of the contingencies here, <clears throat> but I'd like for us to notice some of the characteristics of a revival church. And I don't claim to be a revival pastor or to pastor a revival church. I know some men that I believe to be revival pastors. I know some churches that I believe to be uh, revival churches. I'm going to draw upon my acquaintance with these men and the churches that they pastor tonight. And uh, <clears throat> we will see what God will do for us. When we begin to think about revival, I think that we must concede that um, there are sovereign revivals. These are dispensational <clears throat> in uh, their content. When we talk about sovereign revivals, we're talking about revivals that God uh, sends that are not governed by the attitudes of people, but God uh, has determined that in, upon that particular time, people, and occasion, He will make a tremendous supernatural visitation. We have noticed that time and again. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, and the revival that came to Jerusalem did not come because a local church was seeking God for revival. The revival came because God willed it. There are dispensations for revival, sovereign visitations of God. So it was that when Philip went to Samaria... There was no local church that had been engaged in prayer and fasting for some length of time. The revival was already in Samaria when Philip got there. And thus it was in Gaza. He found the eunuch already hungry for God, searching the Scripture, reading Isaiah, asking, Is this man speaking of himself or of another? Who doubts that the <coughs> revival in Caesarea was not one already waiting for the preacher to get there. God has His own way of moving into the world to create conditions that are so conducive to the salvation of souls. We are living at that 
particular time. As I have said over and over again, God's purpose has a way of repeating itself and coming back full circle. At the first advent, there was a tremendous prophetic ministry that was can be referred to as the Elijah ministry. I believe that there will come again a tremendous ministry in this earth. Not just one man, but a, a tremendous anointing that uh, is meet for the occasion to do what God wishes to be done at that particular time. And so it, uh, I believe that would be repeated. And there was a great revival at the first advent. We ordinarily think that the first advent, the time span was only that which took for a baby to be born. But the first advent comprised the entire life of Jesus Christ and His ministry. Thirty-three years. Some Bible scholars feel that it even included the New Testament church as uh, the history that we have of it in the Bible, characterized as the first advent. The second advent, I believe, will be like it. A tremendous prophetic ministry. A tremendous outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And uh, out of this came reaching of the entire world. And out of this great revival came a world church that was apostate. I feel that the next world church will come out of a Pentecostal revival. It will be an apostate thing. I would submit to you tonight that the, uh, that the church that will convince people, according to what we find in the Scripture, will not be a musty, dead, handshaking thing, but one with power, one that can call fire from heaven. If it were possible, the very elect would be deceived, but it would be apostate. The first world church came out of a Pentecostal revival. I believe that the second world church will have its roots in a Pentecostal revival. But it will be apostate. And, uh, but I am so happy to be at a time to expect such. There was revival in Antioch. And there was promised to be by Jesus Christ in the fourth chapter of John a revival. Now listen closely to <clears throat> this particular scripture here. Jesus told His disciples prior to the outpouring of the Holy Ghost and the setting up of the New Testament church, don't say that there are four months and then comes the harvest. The harvest is already here. Read that entire Scripture. It said, I am going to send you to reap whereupon you bestowed no labor. I am not sending you to sow seed to cultivate a crop. I am sending you to reap a crop that is already in the field and ready to be reaped. This is the position of the church. It was a position of the New Testament church. Revival was waiting for that church when it was born. There is a sovereign disposition that is moving across the land today, shattering preconceived ideas and prejudices. There is a tremendous stream that is flowing and we need to position ourselves directly in the middle of that stream and hook on to the purpose of God that flows like an airy river. And so we gather here tonight that indeed there are sovereign visitations of uh, uh, God upon the earth. 
We know that there can be no revival in a local church until a pastor wants that revival. It is impossible for uh, that to come about. Inasmuch as uh, God moves through the pastor and the uh, people cannot move separate and apart from the pastor uh, without being rebel. And so uh, the church so much depends upon the attitude of the pastor. If he greatly wants revival and desires it, of course God is willing uh, to give it. The pastor is the shepherd, and as the shepherd, the flock is uh, largely held uh, captive to his own particular uh, disposition. A captive flock does not experience revival uh, because, and we can say most time, we would not uh, want to make this such a dogmatic statement, but let's explore a few reasons why that a church might not experience revival. The pastor may be unskilled in programming. And when I mention programming here tonight, I am talking about making the activities of the church growth activities. Not just something that is done to take up time and so on. But as Paul said, I fight not as one who beateth the air. But this great revival pastor made every lick count. When he moved, he was moving in a predetermined direction. To get something done. The activities of the church were to lend themselves to the saving of souls. So a pastor needs to be know how uh, to program uh, the activities of the church so that uh, they are growth oriented. And they are conducive to growth. It may be that the pastor is not spiritually uh, sensitive. And when we speak about being uh, spiritually uh, sensitive uh, to the spirit... We mean that the pastor must be able to deal in spiritual things. He should be a man in, that has uh, his own uh, uh, personal uh, devotion. He knows how to pray and wishes to pray. I uh, go to the church and pray with my uh, working men and women each morning at 6 o'clock. Uh, we have another prayer meeting that is at 10 o'clock. And uh, then on um, uh, Friday night... Uh, there is a prayer meeting that uh, lasts at least till 12 and sometimes all night. At 3 each uh, afternoon on Sunday, the church is open for prayer, and we call that the pastor's prayer meeting. And I invite the people to join me from 3 to 6 to pray at the church at that time. But now all of that does not suffice for another prayer <clears throat> that I must pray. I cannot pray in group fashion and take care of my own needs. Somewhere during every day, I must open my Bible alone with God. And that prayer might not be more than two minutes, three minutes, five minutes. But it is me saying, God, this is JT. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor now. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm your child. I'm your son. I love you. Praise God. Oh, Jesus, put your arms around me. I've got to have you ever and always near me. A revival pastor needs to be a pastor that is sensitive to spiritual things. In fact, he must be a pastor that is sensitive to spiritual things. No man can bring revival. No program can bring revival. Only God can give revival. And it comes about when a person is sensitive in spiritual matters. 
It may be that the pastor may lack uh, spiritual motivation. He may not have any burden himself. He may not care himself. I, when I was younger, and I don't suppose knew any better, on more than one occasion, I addressed a, a, a man on this wise. One fellow one time had this to say to me. Well, what do you think about the church? And I said to him, I don't think that you'll ever build a church here. And he said, why do you say that? I said, because that you, in building a church, it, it constitutes changing people. It is changing them. And in order to change them, you've got to impact them. You've got to wallop them. And I said, you've got to come before him with tears in your eyes, with a burning heart, and with the Bible in your hand. And you've got to get close to him, right on top of him, and look him right in the eye with your tear-filled eye. They've got to get the idea the old boy really feels what he's saying. I believe he really means it. You've got to get inside of him. And it's handing him a chunk of your heart every time that you get up. Praise God. And so, for the lack of motivation sometimes, uh, revival does not come to a local church. It is a consuming, bur- burning burden. And it may be that if a person has no burden, he's, of course, not able to impart a burden. I remember Brother uh, V.A. Gidrose telling me years ago, relative to Brother uh, James Kilgore, he had come to Life Tabernacle. Life Tabernacle had a history of problems. It had come out of a situation. Originally, it was non-UPC, or it it, it come from a a, 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 a a bad background. Well, it come from a troublous background, and they had lost a pastor prior to Brother uh, Kilgore's coming, and perhaps his leaving was a little uh, disappointing and a tearing experience. And into that condition, Brother James Kilgore came. They went for some long length of time. And there was no revival. There was the staid uh, prejudice, the meanness, the carnality, and so on that was present in an assembly that uh, uh, it, accumulation of the years. And uh, Brother Kilgore got desperate for revival. Brother Kil- uh, uh, Gidrose told me about coming to the church uh, to visit with him one day, and, and he heard him praying. But when he got close to the auditorium, he heard such terrible uh, praying, such groaning and agonizing. And when he stepped into the auditorium, he found Brother Kilgore on his hands and knees, crawling round and round the altar, the tears and the mucus pouring out of his eyes, his nose, his mouth. He had gone past the place of praying prayers that had words to it, it was the bellerings of somebody that in desperation. That which was spoken of in the Bible, groanings that cannot be uttered. That of intercession, praise God. Oh, friend, a, a, a revival pastor such as that, I have observed, is one who definitely knows something about a burden that can be touched, as our high priest was, with a feeling of other people's infirmities, people who really care and are greatly stirred, and and so on. I remember a man going from a meeting one time. It was a tremendous, powerful meeting that God dealt with us so strongly in. And he made a mention to me. He said, I will never be the same. Well, I'd heard that before. This fellow pastored a small church that had been the same size for some length of time. He went home, and within two years' time, 
his church was far larger than what it was. In three years' time, he had begun six other churches beside the one that he presently pastored. And this was because that something broke in him. I would not doubt at all tonight that something is going to happen to somebody that is sitting right now in this congregation to move you and to change you into a realm of thought and concept perhaps that you have not experienced before. And I believe that God would be pleased if that would happen. Because of uh, authority lines which God honors, we would observe that the saints cannot go where the pastor does not lead them. And so sometimes uh, churches never become revival churches. Obviously, the pastor creates the climate of the church. The climate of the church comes out of the pastor. It flows into the congregation. After five or six years, a church will begin to take on itself the personality of the man that has been pastoring it. He creates that particular climate. People being good people open themselves up to leadership in order to receive communication. When they open themselves up to, commu- uh, to leadership... They are, of course, are impacted by leadership deep down in their psychological nature. They take on the particular spiritual aspects of that man. And so it is that the pastor creates the climate of the church. The truly revival uh, pastor, I think that we could safely uh, say here tonight, is a God-related man. I believe that, and I know that you do too. The revival pastor knows God. He truly knows God. I believe that is possible. We passed through an area one time when we had a high degree of professionalism about us as preachers. And we had uh, sought to impress uh, each other that we were tough-skinned and, and whatnot. I thank God that we're getting out of that particular shadow. We are not ashamed to weep. We are not ashamed to admit our weaknesses. We are not ashamed to say that I'm hungry for God. I need help. And I appreciate you. Praise God. I thank God for that. I was sitting in a restaurant not long ago with one of my brothers who is a great soul winner and a tremendous pastor who pastors a very fine and strong church. We talked about God and God's work and about how great God was. And in the midst of that congregate, uh, that conversation, uh, he, the man just broke out uh, to me and he said, I love him so much. And the grown man who had been preaching for years began to cry. I like to see the freshness of a child. My know-how is nothing. I don't know anything. I am made of the dirt of the earth and I can do nothing. And Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And that means no thing. There is no thing that you can do. And this man said, I know him. And he looked at me through his teary eyes and he said, I really do, Brother Pew. I know him. He said, I know quite a bit about him. And said, I love him so much. Praise God. Ah, I feel like the fingers of love that's running and sifting its way through our fellowship. Knocking down this prudishness and facade. 
Letting us look at each other's naked souls so that we touch one another in real personality. Praise God. And see each other as we actually are. This is revival. Praise God. And I appreciate it so much. It's possible for a person to... It is not possible for a person to build a, a strong, truly revival church uh, that uh, unless... Uh, that particular person uh, is a hold of God. And, of course, if he know, only if he knows God. Personality and psychology, it doesn't matter how expertly it's displayed, will not build a strong spiritual church. I have seen men float out among other men, and uh, they had these tremendous big M-way smiles and, and all of this uh, ready uh, handshakes and, and so on. And uh, they seem to have it all together. When you attempted to minister to men like that, they sit with a kind of a condescending look and, and, and so on as if they uh, just was trying to figure you out and wondering what you was trying to really uh, get across, you know, undercover and whatnot. But that doesn't build a church. Thank God it's all the barriers down. Thank God. No facade. No put on. Praise God. But I just love Jesus Christ. And I love souls. And I love you. Praise the Lord. Let's get on with it. The time is too short for the playing of games. And the tempting to make impressions. Praise the Lord. It's just souls and God's great and wonderful good work that uh, is most important. Inasmuch as the church comes out of the heart of the preacher, there can be no true revival church unless the minister has himself a, a strong relationship with God. And that is uh, true. The revival pastor is not only uh, a man that is related to God, but he is also a person that is related to people. He knows people, loves people, and he sustains and bears a very good relationship uh, with them. A revival pastor is able to draw people into the mainstream of God's move and unify them so that the church flows as a body uh, into revival. Uh, <clears throat> this, of course, creates uh, <clears throat> a particular climate. He's a creator of a personal climate. We used to feel like that the only way to pastor a church, and in some areas that still holds true, is a chummy, personal, close, folksy kind of a deal with the people. That you were in their house uh, most every week, and that when you came in the house that you didn't stop until you walked through the living room and went to the refrigerator, and like one of the family opened it up and, and to see what was inside, and, and this helped them to like you and to, have a, and to be a good pastor. Well, that's fine, if, uh, if, but uh, when you get uh, up a certain size, you won't be able to visit everybody every week, and so on. And there's got to be a way to create a personal relationship some other way and a way of conducting that service and coming across to those people so that you leave an impression I like you and this is a family a revival church has about it a certain community and family climate so that when a people come into it it feels like that they have come home that they have come into a family situation and uh, it's good to refer to the assembly. Welcome to the family. We're happy to have you at the table tonight. And uh, come on in. We're, we're happy that you're here. And to cause them to feel like that this indeed is a, a place where there's warmth 
and personal appreciation, where that a person will be received and appreciated uh, for what they are. And But uh, everything is not done just exactly from the pulpit and then the, uh, the pastor turning his back and scooting out and the people never seeing him. I remember the statement that John F. Kennedy made just before he came to Dallas to die. Uh, Jackie Kennedy did not want to come to Dallas, and so they had some words. But uh, uh, Kennedy's uh, influence was definitely going down. He needed the Dallas trip. There was something he needed to mend between John Conley and LBJ and so on and other things. So he gave Jackie this particular uh, admonition. He said, Jackie, uh, uh, shake all the hands that you can and said, when you are in the crowd, walk slowly through the crowd. I think that is a good admonition for any pastor. Walk slowly through the crowd. It might be that you can't get in every house every week. But when you're with them, be with them. And when you're talking to them, look straight in the eye, not over the shoulder until you can spy some other thing that you need to do. But as if they were the only person in all the world. And give them your undivided attention. How many times, Calvary Tabernacle in uh, Indianapolis, have I cooled my heels on that uh, first row of seats and 12 o'clock is passed and 1 o'clock is passed and 2 o'clock was passed and Pastor Urshan would be still in his office and he would stay there and he would talk as long as there was somebody that wanted to see him. If that line was long and they was willing to wait till 3 o'clock, he would wait till 3 o'clock uh, to talk to them. Uh, this meant a lot. He might have been gone a lot, but when he was there, he was there. I had rather stay till 3 o'clock in the morning on a service night and talk to people and counsel than to have my day mixed up the next day and beating the bushes and going across town to counsel the next day. I'd rather take care of it on, uh, while I am at the church, if I possibly can, in as a personal way as possibly can uh, be. Uh, and of course, uh, the meeting the people's needs uh, in the service itself helps the church to be people-related and a very personal thing. I uh, <clears throat> do not pray for the people of my church. That might be right, it might be wrong. But I find that it works a lot better for me to teach the church that uh, the body heals itself. And that the 16th chapter of Mark said, They shall lay hands upon the sick, and they shall recover. And that was baptized believers. That any time a baptized believer lays hands upon people and prays for them, if they believe, they'll get well. And uh, saints, that's written to saints. Praise God. And miracles ought to be done at the hands of saints. And then I want them to believe that they are responsible for one another. How in the world did the Apostle Paul pastor a church of 40,000 people? Or pastor a church and be with it for a couple of years and leave it and not see it again for two more years? And when he would come back would find it to be larger than it was when he left it. He pastored in a different way than I have been used to pastoring. There was something about the body that took care of itself. And so, when the people need prayer, I usually say, come sit up on the altar. The body will heal itself. Those who are, feel the urge of faith and compassion, 
Come lay your hands upon your brother and your sister. This creates more of the family situation. Gives them a feeling of responsibility one to another. Not that the pastor is the knight in shining armor that is constantly dashing as a hero to beat the wolves off of the poor struggling sheep that's just about to fall into hell anyway. That was not the concept that the New Testament pastors got over to the churches of the New Testament time. Those labor were strong. They were powerful. They were able to beget other labors. And the churches grew. They were able to disciple other people. And it was not left simply for the pastor to do the discipling. But other people were able to do it also and to take care of it. So uh, that is a great thing. Then, of course, the ministry to the people is a personal thing in a revival church. I don't know how you get a sermon, and I don't know whether the way I get it is right or not. But uh, it seems to work pretty good. I tried to pray uh, for all of the people that God brings to my mind when I pray, in the early morning prayer meeting and other times that I pray. And there are categories of people in the church I always pray for. I pray for the men and women who are at work that day and that God protect them and that God uh, develop their skills and give them promotion and, and whatnot. I pray for the older people of the church. I pray for the women at home with their children. I tried to get in my mind a vision of each one of them in their habitat at that time. I see those women perhaps with maybe three children close together. And she's paying bills perhaps. She's riding it on down. It is the last of the month. And they had a little sum of money in the checking. But when she begins to ride it out, finally when she's written the last check and it's zero on the stub, There is maybe two or three other bills to the side yet unpaid. You know, bill paying is depressing. I kind of see that woman there in the depression that comes to her. And the way she feels about it. I pray for her. I, I try to feel for her. I go out to the kids in school and so on. And I actually pray for them. I visit them in spirit. I come to their side in my prayers. And then when I do that, there are scriptures that come to me to meet particular needs. I write them down. And there are Bible studies and sermons that grow out of those prayer sessions when I visit and I pray for my people. So that when I minister to them, I am not uh, putting something out that I got out of a book or that something I have dropped drawn up and constructed as an artist would paint a picture something that is uh, but something that is personal something that I got on my knees with their face before me and so on it fits them it's not a sermon it's not just a a a a, a performance but it is a ministry it is a ministry. And to make myself feel like my, uh, to be close to the people sometime when I start to uh, teach and preach, I ask myself the question, if Jesus were here tonight and he was going to address this congregation, what would he do? And then uh, I know what he would do. I don't think that he would look around for the tallest, most prominent rock to climb and then stretch his muscles and say, all right, hear ye, hear ye. I am about to produce the most fabulous piece of oratory that you have ever heard. I don't think that he would do that. But I rather imagine him 
uh, sitting down and pulling them as close as he could, or going among them. And I find it advantageous to get close to them. The older I get, the more of my ministry is done out of the pulpit. It's done in front. It's done in the aisle. I thank God for a portable mic that I can go through the congregation. I can come and touch a shoulder here and touch a shoulder there. I find it advantageous to tell them sometime, I am out of the pulpit because I don't want you to think that I am performing tonight. I want you to get the idea that I really mean every word that I am saying. That I am attempting to communicate to you, not get through a Bible lesson or to get through a sermon. My dear friends, tonight a revival church is one that is personal. It's one that's got life in it. It is one, friend, that is not a professional put on or something of this nature. But it is a flow of life that goes into the people and a rapport that passes back and forth. And this indeed is good. Even evangelistic preaching uh, can uh, have the uh, sinner in mind. Now, I don't want you to feel myself presumptuous here tonight, and uh, I'm not going to try to be so modest that uh, I might not be of any help. But there have been times that I just wish that I had the opportunity to go and sit down in somebody's Sunday service, to hear that Bible study, to hear him teach that class, to hear him preach to his saints, and to hear him as he comes back and preaches that night, just to see how other people do it. Uh, I don't know whether you'd like that or not. Uh, I've got uh, a Bible uh, morning uh, study, my Sunday school class, Sunday morning message, and a Sunday night message. Just right, just I told the uh, tape uh, uh, minister, I said, just yank out three random wherever and uh, don't try to pick them. And, uh, and I said, I just want to bring it along. If any of you would just like to look in through a window on somebody else Sunday uh, service, well, we have about 20 of these and uh, a set of three here for $9 and, and so on. And you can see me about that. It's possible to use uh, even new converts uh, in making uh, your services real personal. Last Sunday morning, I preached on... Uh, <clears throat> the uh, new birth, or Jesus Christ's first sermon. And if uh, what would he preach? His first message. First recorded full message, of course, was to one man, and it was a new birth message. So I preached on the new birth. We had quite a few unsaved people uh, present. At the close of the uh, uh, message, I wanted to get across to the fact that anybody present that morning could receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And all at once, I looked over there, and there was a great big man that had had the Holy Ghost one week and a half. And I said to him, come on up here. And I was in the aisle with my portable mic, and I like to get right in their face so that they can make no mistake who I'm preaching to. Praise God. And uh, uh, so I asked him uh, to, uh, uh, I said, come on up here and leave your testimony. He came up there. He was a big husky truck driver. And uh, he said, last Wednesday, he said, I was driving my truck down the road and said, uh, I'd been coming to church and praying and so on. And I got to thinking of the Lord. And he said, the Holy Ghost fell upon me and I began to speak in tongues. 
I got so happy, he said, I thought I got to stop this thing or I'm going to kill somebody. And said, I pulled that thing over at the first place that I could. And he said, I had me a wonderful church service out there all by myself. Praise God. Hallelujah. Well, there we were. We were not way back in some pulpit and so on, so sedately uh, position. But here was two men standing down in the aisle. One of them a truck driver. He had on rough clothes and so on. But tears was upon his face. And something said to that sinner, You can have that. You can be born again. Praise God. Hallelujah. A revival church has a family uh, atmosphere, a community. And this is what people are starving for, hungry for. Pull them in. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're wanted here. And we're so thankful uh, that uh, you are here. And, uh, and so on. Now the revival pastor uh, brings people and uh, God together. He touches God. And with one hand. And uh, he, so to speak, touches people with the other hand. And he brings these two particular uh, factors together. This particular uh, merging of God and man creates an area that we call a growth climate. When God and man are moved together into an overlapping posture, there is created a, an area that is growth because man and God have come together. Life has come where man is, where otherwise would be nothing but death. And this is done, of course, by involving people in prayer. And there are various ways of praying. But there's got to be prayer. There is no ifs, there's no ends, there is no buts about it. There has got to be prayer. There will be no revival unless there's prayer. First, there's got to be prayer. Second, there's got to be prayer. Third, there's got to be prayer. And so on. And then, of course, there's got to be spirit-permeated worship. When I talk about this kind of worship, I am not talking necessarily about the sheer volume of the uh, desplan that uh, is there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something that bounces off of something. That comes up from an altar of prayer. Something that is exuberant and natural. That flows, praise God. That you sense that it is real. That is spontaneous. Creating good worship is uh, is so... uh, Uh, difficult sometimes if you insert any negative thing into it such as why don't you people sing tonight okay they're good people they'll oblige you they will turn up volume but it doesn't mean that worship will be there worship is a delicate thing it is like a man courting a woman it is a it is it is a love affair between man and God so that there is a mutual interchange and so on it It does not necessarily mean physical involvement. I went to a public meeting one time that was of a week's duration. I was so hungry to get out of that meeting and go somewhere and worship God. You know, so we didn't worship God. We had 
tremendous amounts of noise. We had tremendous amounts of physical involvement. All on this side, love the Lord, lift your right hand. All on this side, love the Lord, lift your left hand. All, all in the center, love the Lord, clap your hand. And then it was on and on. And the fellow that was leading that, he just, he just assaulted us with tremendous barrages uh, uh, from a turned up loudspeaker system. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there, and we'd get a song going and, and I was just about to get to where I could see the face of Jesus and love him through that song. And then, and then he would stop it and, and here would come a big lot of blasting across the mic again. Friend, that's not worship. Praise God. Amen. It's got to come from deep in here. Hallelujah. Blessed is a person that can lead people to real worship. Praise God. I remarked to my wife, I just wish you would leave us alone and give me a chance to worship the Lord. Praise God. To get my mind upon the Lord and make love to Him. Could we say praise the Lord? Hallelujah. A revival church has got reality in it. It just doesn't have noise in it. It has life. Let's all say life. Life. Let's say it again. Life. Let's say it again. Life. Praise God. And, uh, uh, of course, that is not a facade. It's not a put on and so on. A revival church should not have too much uh, uh, talk from uh, the uh, pulpit. It should not have too much talk from the pulpit. Too many times there is uh, too many announcements and so on. I went to a, a district one time to preach a camp meeting. And I, uh, there was a good crowd. They clapped their hands during singing. And uh, I got up to preach and I said, My subject tonight is so-and-so and I will read my text from so-and-so. And I read my text and I launched into it. And then I looked and I lost my congregation. They were playing with babies. They were looking. The people on the right side were looking to the left side. The people on the left side were looking to the right side. And there were some that were turned and looking behind them. But a very minority, a few minority that was looking at the pulpit. And I thought to myself, I can rip all the gears out of my throat this first night trying to get their attention. Throw, turn some somersets and so on and finally get their attention. But I'll be shot for the rest of the camp and I won't have any voice. And so I just closed my Bible. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. I had a message for you, but you're not able to receive it tonight. And I don't know exactly why you're not. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. I don't want to waste your time. We're going to spend the equivalent time that I would have preached in prayer. And maybe uh, tomorrow night you will be able to receive the Word of God. And so we came and we prayed. Next night, same thing happened. Second time I closed my Bible. I said, I'm sorry. Again tonight, you're not able to receive the Word of the Lord. I, would, I was hoping that I could preach to you tonight. But you are not ready and not able to receive God's Word. We again tonight will spend the equivalent time in prayer. And it may be tomorrow night you'll be able to receive the Word of God. And so on. You know what happened? A sizable number of the people perhaps came from situations where there was a lot of blah, blah, blah that came over the pulpit that was not edifying. And lots of it sometimes was boring. Now, I'm being very frank tonight, you know, but, uh, but uh, we, we're grown folks, you know. And, uh, and it wasn't edifying. It was boring. And these folks had learned to insulate themselves and to turn it off and, and, and so on. And so they looked to the right and they looked to the left. And they got the idea over a period of time, perhaps years, that there was not much going on really in the pulpit. Not much meaningfully said. And so they wool gathered and, uh, and so on in order to survive. And uh, 
And sometimes that can happen. But a revival church doesn't have a bunch of unnecessary things pouring across that pulpit. I instruct the people who help me, don't you say one word that is not necessary to be said. We will spend this time in worship. We will spend this time in lifting up Jesus Christ. When we open our mouth to say something, it is, it's supposed to be said and needs to be said. Praise God. And then after a while, the people in the pew hook on. They say, what do you know? The action is really up there. And they're saying things that make sense. And they're saying things that's really needful to be said. And they begin to hook on and become one in attention. I can uh, notice that uh, I should not uh, push but just one uh, major thing. I can't push a bunch of things. If I push more than one major thing at a time, I'm going to have to promote too much. And this kills the worship and so on. There's just only one major thing at a time because we don't want but just so much promotion. The main business is preaching. It's worship. It's getting souls saved. Praise God. Could we say praise the Lord? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Uh, and, of course, the uh, revival pastor practices uh, creative administration. Uh, I'd like to be able to say <clears throat> quite a bit here. Faith, release. What am I talking about release here? I'm talking about leaving an opinion or feeling with the congregation that this is not tightly controlled, that it's loose, <clears throat> that there is a relaxed thing, that... Uh, uh, such as, uh, and that can be brought about such as very few introductions. Never a song, a special song introduced. Now we're going to have so and so come tonight and they're going to bless us with a song. Why say that? Or never to introduce somebody that belongs to the church. The Sunday school superintendent that's going to get up and say something about Sunday school. They know him. And just a nod and he gets up and he, uh, he says a song. The song leader ought to be schooled that, uh, to know what I mean when I uh, give a nod. That means a chorus. And that they get up and sing that chorus. And a nod over here. That means that that quartet sings. Or a nod there. And that means it's choir time. Now, never say, folks, we're going to have the choir now. Because that would be obvious, you see, and, and so on. So it's just a matter of getting up and walking off the pulpit so that there is a flow of the whole thing. And it gives a sense of not being controlled and uptight. But the people are relaxed in it. And, and they give their particular uh, uh, contribution in their worship. And there is uh, something that about it which they appreciate and, and usually enjoy. And, of course, a great and wonderful uh, climate of, uh, of love. And sometimes to break the monotony and to make the announcements, I like to just uh, take my little card and walk straight off the platform and stop about halfway down the aisle and say, Say, folks, we've got a, a terrific week coming up here, and I want to share it with you. We're going to have a wonderful time around here. And uh, incidentally, hey, we're glad you're here tonight. Stand up and so on. Glad you come. It's about time you're showing up around here. We've been missing you. And so on. Yes, sir. Incidentally, now on, on Tuesday, such and such a thing and such and such a thing. And, of course, uh, announcements uh, kept uh, to the minimum. Uh, 
when we're talking about uh, uh, creative administration, we are talking about even your business being that which uh, will add to growth. The pastor, of course, needs to make an impact upon the city and make them aware of the church and its program. Now, there are several uh, outstanding days that we capitalize on. One of them is coming up, which is Palm Sunday. That is an all-out push. We'll have all-day singing. We'll have dinner. We'll feed everybody that comes. We try to stack as many people in as possible. This is Palm Sunday, a day of rejoicing. And I talk about that to the, to the sinners that are there and tell them how that real old-fashioned religion is such. Easter, and then, of course, our big day of the year is Pentecost Sunday. And on Pentecost Sunday, we do something that is uh, uh, usually unusual. We had one time the world's largest cake. It went up. It was taller than our church house. It was tremendously tall. 5,000 candles were sent out and people were invited to come and celebrate the birthday of the church on Pentecost. And to bring that candle and to place that burning candle upon the world's largest cake, the birthday cake, celebrating the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost, and to uh, get a piece of the cake, the world's largest cake. We had uh, one time the world's largest candle. It extended 30 feet above the tall pinnacle of the church. You could see it for miles and miles. When that thing was lit up at night, the flame on it was five feet tall and, uh, and so on. That candle burned all week prior to Pentecost. We had these gigantic uh, v- uh, vapor lights that, uh, uh, you know, that they use at uh, malls and so on. When they have them opening, they were interlacing the lights. We had uh, 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 bands out on the parking lot singing, people out passing out tracts. Come uh, Pentecost Sunday. Praise God. It's coming up. Next Sunday is Pentecost Sunday, the birthday of the church. And this is all to make the city aware that you're there. And uh, we could say quite a few more things, and there's just a little uh, deal here. But when we're talking about uh, creative administration, we're talking about making the business affairs of your church uh, a growth-oriented, something that has growth potential. On our annual business meeting, I always like to give a state-of-the-church message. I like to go over where we are, where we came from, the progress that we're making, and what we're shooting for. Now then, prior, uh, ever, the first of every year too, I have a meeting with every department head. And that meeting is, I want them to tell me what they'll be shooting for next year. I give them some suggestions of how to adjust it. I ask them to produce a year's calendar and that we will all be meeting together at such and such time. And then all department heads come together. We have a nice meal at some restaurant somewhere. And all of them have a big desk calendar which I bought for them. We Each one tells about what uh, his particular program for the year. We adjust it so it doesn't overlap or conflict. All of us write everything down on his individual calendar so that every department head knows what is going to be happening in every department on such and such a date. So that if I am on the backside of nowhere, I can look at my calendar and tell what's happening in the church that day. Because it has been laid out already a year in advance. And then finally there comes, uh, at this particular uh, meeting, 
uh, I give to them a very blunt uh, lesson on leadership. I tell them this, nobody owns anything in this church. I don't own anything in this church. This is not my church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And you don't own anything in this church. There's nobody owns any office in this church. And so on. We're all on a team together. And we're doing it for the Lord. But I tell them, you're important. And, and so on. And uh, I go through <coughs> a good uh, lesson on leadership. And I'll not go any farther into that. Five steps of good leadership. And uh, I give them some lessons uh, in that. And uh, we go from there. Then comes a Sunday night. It is a, a one night of the year that all of us look forward to. It is the year of our annual projection. And the departments have gotten their program together. They project it in dramatic style. We have street meetings. We have jail services right in the church that night with people dressed up accordingly. We do all kinds of things so that it is innovative and eye-catching and it goes on. It takes up the entire Sunday night. The people get up uh, high on it. They see uh, what all their church is doing that they didn't even know that it was doing. That's interlaced with, aren't you glad to be a part of a family like this? An ongoing family like this. And then, without fail, people come up afterwards and say, Look, Pastor, I, I want to get involved more than what I am. Where can I hook on? And uh, uh, what can I do? Or I want to get into this or get into that. And, of course, we have uh, blanks and uh, involvement blanks and commitment uh, uh, cards the, for that particular occasion. And uh, that is uh, very helpful. Praise God. Uh, now, the revival uh, pastor creates a sensitive balance between promotion and spiritual flow. Uh, I have been into some churches that were literally burned out with promotion. They were tired, weary, and worn out. But uh, there was not that life and exuberancy in worship. They had been very busy, but there had not been a flow of life like it ought to be. Revival <coughs> churches is, is not just uh, promoting uh, something. It is uh, uh, the real life of Christ that... Uh, is existing there at the time. Now, uh, I'd like for these fellows that are down here to quickly pass out uh, uh, a bunch of old bulletins. And I don't want to insult you with this because uh, just right away and, and you can get somebody to help you. Uh, I'm wanting to pass these old bulletins out here to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. There is a lot of promotion and blah, blah that can be taken care of in the church bulletin. Saturday morning is church bulletin time. I use a dictaphone and I outline it very briefly. I usually spend about uh, an hour, hour and a half on the church bulletin. And I don't uh, spare uh, how much goes into it. Just You might get somebody to help you. Uh, just... Uh, and go down the aisles and just, just throw them out, broadcast them, and, and, and so on. And these are just at random. Some of them are so old, and, but uh, just give you an idea what I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, but uh, in that bulletin, we try to make all the announcements and so that we don't have to push that stuff uh, from the pulpit. Is it time, brother? Okay. Uh, and then the bulletin also shows the philosophy of the pastor. 
the way he tries to look at things. If you care to glance at any of that stuff in there, you see it's me trying to sell a concept. Every Sunday, trying to sell a particular concept. So that those people think like I think. And they become one with me. Now, it's better for them to read it and have it than for me to, uh, to push that stuff over the pulpit. And uh, it saves a lot of time. Praise God. Then, of course, the revival pastor uh, uh, creates, a, cultivates the people flow. And what do you know? We are going to finish this thing, I think. And uh, I could say a lot about the process of cultivating this, but you are going to be so tremendously blessed by other speakers that will be coming dealing with this. How that a person is uh, seen after from the time that they come to the into your church until uh, <clears throat> they come back again and what all happens. And then, of course, the revival pastor has a revival attitude. And the revival comes out of him. I sincerely apologize tonight if I have seemed to say that or uh, project myself as a, an example of something, but uh, uh, because I don't intend to do that. I'm not an example of uh, anything but a struggle. But I am struggling. I'm trying. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And uh, thank God that's the reason why we're all here tonight. And I am so thrilled over what God is doing and what He is going to do. Praise God. And I'm going to turn this service uh, uh, right now to our moderator. Praise God. Thank you, Brother Pugh. Uh, great feeling here tonight. Got a lot of ideas, a lot of things happening. You have 15, 16 and a half minutes. And uh, if you want to ask a question to this good man... Uh, right here's a microphone. Right here's a microphone. Uh, we have to stop at a quarter to eight. And no matter where we are, we're going to try to stay on schedule. Brother Barkas, state I'd like your to question, have the please. Five steps of uh, the good leadership, real quick. Uh, why don't I just leave, uh, set that over there, and you take a look at it later? All right. Next question. <laughs> Short-lived, wasn't it? Here's a microphone. Here's a microphone. We'd like for you to come to the mic so everybody can hear the question. Brother Cornwell, I'll recognize you. Brother Pugh, do you, uh, in your church, do you just wait until a good evangelist comes by? Do you plan for revival with evangelists? How do you go about having a man of God come to your church for revival? Uh, Brother Cornwell, I think that there's a... One of the most important things is for a pastor to be really spiritually sensitive to God and also to people. That uh, he knows where his people are and he knows what's happening in his congregation. He knows uh, their spiritual condition and so on. And, uh, well, uh, last year we didn't have one single revival meeting. And uh, it was a year of uh, more or less seminar activity and um, studying and discipling and, and things like this. And it went on. Uh, but uh, we shifted over this year. Uh, it's just, I just feel like God wants us to hit it with everything we've got as far as evangelism is concerned. So uh, the people are alerted that every weekend is crusade. It is, uh, <clears throat> it is a one-day gospel encounter, we call it. 
And uh, friend, they know it's going to be red hot. Right like you are in the middle of revival. That I tell them, you're going to get a good Bible lesson on Sunday morning. And the Bible study. And Sunday school. Sunday morning is going to be evangelistic. We're, it's gonna, we're going to go for the center. Hook and tongue. We're going to try to get him in this altar and pray him through. Sunday night, it's going to be the same thing. Red hot evangelism. Right after the center. Well, that's this year. Now, if we can have a man come by that will fit into that particular flow and preach those kind of sermons and reach after what God is doing, great. We want that. We want that. And then in keeping with what I've already said, my good people, I believe that there's going to come and is coming among us a ministry that is strong enough and powerful enough to shatter the heart of the sinner. And I believe that God's going to mature us enough to accept that kind of a ministry when it shows up. And that we're going to be mature enough not to try to make little gods of ourselves if God does use us. Could we say amen? amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And uh, I don't know whether that answers anything or not, brother. Very fine. Next question. I know Brother Pugh is given us a lot of things to think about, but there may be something that he did not cover in your mind. Here's a mic. Here's a mic. Amen. Praise God. You're a good teacher, Brother Pugh. You're a good teacher. Not many people are asking questions. Amen. We have uh, about 14 more minutes. You have something else you want to say? A question. All right. Okay. I believe in, you know, the holiness doctrine and everything, but I wanted to know, because there's a big controversy, should a preacher preach holiness when there's a lot of, like, say, a revival, when there's a lot of new com- or, you know, people coming in the church? Should he preach on holiness as far as the makeup, the women cutting of hair and stuff? I just wanted to Well, I'm old enough to know better than to say some things, but uh, <laughs> I... Uh, <clears throat> I just, uh, I quit trying to prove a lot of stuff later, you know, and so I just go ahead and I enjoy living. Praise God. Hallelujah. Could we say praise the Lord? Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now, uh, there's different, there are different ministries. I want to, I I believe that. Uh, If there is a particular anointing for a particular ministry that would uh, set a group of people uh, right, and so on, and it is the flow of the Spirit. But, my dear people, anything that is done, that is not done according to the purpose of God and the flow of the Spirit, or what God is saying to the church at that time, it doesn't matter what it is, it won't work. Praise God. If it's in keeping with what God wants and what the Spirit is trying to do, that's fine. But if it's me wanting to set somebody straight, and so on. That's another thing altogether. I believe that there's such a thing as a person having a prophetic ministry that could break and uh, cast down before that something is built up and fixed out right. But most of the time, uh, uh, my own personal preference is that I want to take care of my own problems, my own self. And I like to do this uh, 
in a very blunt, personal way, just like you do the other things. And I don't have to mess up a good sermon to say some things, see? I don't have to wrap it up in a sermon. Sometimes I tell the people that this is the way I put it. I've got some, uh, some very uh, pronounced uh, pastoral observations that I want to make, and so on. And uh, uh, I would like for all of you people to be here at uh, such and such time or such and such night because I have some very, very uh, uh, important pastoral observations that I want to make. Well, uh, I'm going to talk to them. I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to be preaching because I don't have to preach in order to say something. See? And uh, uh, I just... I don't get in the pulpit. I come down among them. I get up close to them. And I'd say to them, there's entirely too much going in and out here on Sunday night. We'll start that, for starters, and and so on. And uh, so we talk about that a while. And another observation that I would like to make here at this particular point is such and such thing. And I'm not afraid of them. And uh, they believe that I'm not going to hurt them or embarrass them. And I don't want to hurt them. So they're relaxed. And they look at me and they listen. And we can communicate. And I come across with a, some humor and we all laugh together, you know. And, uh, but I make it strong enough that they know what I'm talking about. And I say, do you understand what I'm saying? If you don't understand what I'm saying, we'll go over it again. Praise God. Hallelujah. And you know, when it comes to what we call holiness, that is particular dress and so on like that, that I believe and that you believe, many times I find that so much easier, more easily taken care of in a low-key Bible study and so on, where you go through the Word and you just share this and share that and you give information that people are wondering about. And, you know, like we used to... Take a pill on a little spoonful of clabber, you know. That'd make it go down better. And uh, so on. So, uh, uh, when you kind of uh, mix some other things in with it, some good interesting uh, information, will um, uh, people re- will receive it better. But uh, uh, I have told evangelists that, uh, look, you may go to a church and you're going to see things there that you don't approve of and you don't like. Those things were there before you got there. You're going, how long do you expect to be there? How many sermons do you expect to preach? Uh, you're not going to change that with that 21 sermons that you're expecting to preach. When you leave, it's going to be just exactly like it was when you came. And your 21 sermons is not going to turn a church around. It takes five to six years, lots of times, to turn a church around. Praise God. Hallelujah. And I tell, I tell them, you're just going to... That's the pastor's responsibility. If you are an evangelist, God called you to do the work of the evangelist. Preach to souls. Praise God. If He wants you to preach to the saints, well, uh, well, uh, you'll him, you, him, you and Him will have to work it out and so on. But, uh, <laughs> but so on. But you know, I, I just think some real old good fashion horse sense and realism is is uh, is real good along these lines praise god brother pew i have a question what's clabber (laughs) 
<laughs> Somebody else. Amen. I know what a pill is, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Amen. Anybody else? Praise God. Isn't this been good? Amen. Praise the Lord. Brother Pugh, they want you to flip that chart over so they, they don't have to walk over there. I guess you'll have, maybe some of you have to walk over there anyway. I don't know if we can get it in a place where everybody can see it. All right. Somebody else? You thought of a question? Amen. <clears throat> Is there any more bulletins available? No, they're all gone. Have to share with your brother, maybe. Amen. Anybody else? Brother? How many services do you conduct a week, Brother Pugh? We only have three on Sunday right now. Uh, it's <laughs> but uh, I'm so blessed to have with me uh, uh, Brother Terry Pugh as my associate pastor. And this has just spoiled me. Before he came, we were uh, on Sunday. Uh, we ministered four hours every Sunday. Uh, one hour on the Bible study, one hour uh, Sunday morning sermon, came back at uh, 6 o'clock and taught an hour of what we call lay leadership. This was to form a nuclei of people capable of discipling other people and try to turn them around and think like I did relative to revival and soul winning and so on. And then come back again Sunday night for another hour. I was tired. And... Uh, <clears throat> But uh, then Wednesday night, of course, a Bible study. Our Wednesday night Bible study, we usually goes just uh, about an hour and 15 minutes. Wednesday night, we don't, uh, we try to let the people out early. Folks, your people can't win souls if you've got them in the church house all the time. Praise God. Praise God. You've got to, every saint supposed to have a ministry. And it's better to double up on it and spend almost all day Sunday in church. And then, and when you have church, have church. And then let them, those folks have some home time. And have some time to teach Bible studies. And some time to do their ministry during the week. Praise God. I have been guilty of almost destroying homes by having people shut up in the church house too much. They didn't have time for home. Amen. I believe that life should be a balanced thing. Let's all say balanced. Balanced. Let's say it again. Balanced. Let's say it again. Balanced. Praise God. Thank you. You didn't answer it, did you? Three on Sunday and one on Wednesday? That's all. Now, there's a, a lot of other things that goes on, but it does not involve the entire church. Any time that we ask for the entire church family to come, I want to have a good reason to ask for them to come. And uh, I, I'm, I don't want to bring them out of their homes and away from their particular ministries out in the field unless I've got a good reason to have them there. But now there's lots of stuff going on. Now on Sunday afternoon, there might be as many as six classes going on 
between 6 and 7, and that is plus the choir. But these classes are being taught by other people. There is the Christian Academy, which every new convert has to go through with before he's eligible for church membership. He's got to know what he believes, and so on before he can even be a member of the church, and so on. And all of that is taking place on Sunday afternoon. And, uh, uh, and then, of course, there is the carpenter shop, the youth program during the week. And, but that just involves the youth. And, uh, and of course, there's, there's other things that, that take place. But not, it doesn't involve the whole church family. And, uh, Very good. <clears throat> we have uh, three, two minutes now. Anybody else have a quick question? Amen. All right, brother, come to the mic. That's good. I'm not sure how can you answer this, but uh, from one of your tapes I heard you preach on, you have a ministry, and in discipling uh, young men, like you're saying, a group of people teaching them, and they can go and disciple others. I was in a church where about nine or ten uh, ministers come out of the Stuttgart Fellowship over in Germany, and that tape really helped, and I saw it work, and I see them going out to different countries and cities and doing some of the work. But I noticed in the States since I've came back that, it's, it's like it's a, it's a fear because of not being able to trust somebody in some way. I mean, like, you know, like in some churches, you can't depend on somebody maybe to have house meetings or something like that. How would you deal with that here? You know what, brother? I believe that <clears throat> there, is a, there is a weakness, there's need sometimes that only revival can really cure. I would submit to you today that no pastor is in absolute control of his church unless he is in spiritual control. And that as such, it is much easier to move a given thing and change it if you float it over into another location or adjustment on a flood tide of the Spirit. Much safer, much easier to do it that way rather than to take a bulldozer and shove it across the dry ground. Revival is God's answer. And when a man is indeed in spiritual control, he knows it. And there is a certain uh, surety that uh, goes about it and so on. We need revival. Praise God. Hallelujah. 